And you are listening to The Advice Show. I'm your host, uh, Robert K. Elder, and today we are talking with Julie Friedman. Uh, the Advice Show is sponsored by Sure, purveyors of professional microphones and headphones. Check them out at Sure.com. That's S-H-U-R-E.com. The Advice Show is part of the Sometimes Media Local Podcast Network. Uh, Julie, welcome. Thank you. All right. So I want to start out and I want to say... I want to run down your credentials because there's kind of too many. Okay. So. <laughs> Thank you. A lot of school. A lot of school. A lot yeah. of school. And you also told me that that you, like, as we were talking beforehand, that you are also a sex therapist. Like, uh, well, I wasn't a sex therapist. Uh, I was trained in sex therapy as part of my residency. Oh, okay. So okay. we had, we, I was at Indiana University at their medical where, center. Where the Kinsey Institute That's is. exactly right. Yeah. So we trained at the Kinsey Institute. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. So, but that's, that's uh, not where we're starting. That's where we're ending. <laughs> but, but, uh, but you're also... Uh, uh, a professor, and so so so, give us your CV. Um, uh, so I'm an assistant professor at Northwestern University Medical School in their department of psychiatry, and I am also the director of obesity and weight management programs at Insight Behavioral Health Centers. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's funny to hear you say that because uh, you know there are photos that are going to go with this. But do you even weigh 100 pounds? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing the self control. Oh, um, you know what? I wouldn't even say self control. I actually would say good genes. Oh, I have okay. really really good genes. And yes, I'm active and yes, I eat well, but I have very, very good genes. I have a 90 pound mother and uh, maybe a 150 pound father. Okay, um, okay. So it's just, you know, our body weight is so largely so genetic. She, I wish I could take credit. Going, she's just looking at me and going, bad genes, <laughs> bad, bad genes. Oh. Well, 60% of Americans have bad genes, yeah. um, you know, and so that's part of the, the balance and part of our struggle is saying to people, you know what, you really have crappy genes. How can we teach you to accommodate for that? Because that's really what they have to do in managing their weights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, um, I, I, but you have a very personal reason for going into this mm-hmm. line of work. Can you tell me that story? Sure. Um, well, I was attracted to health psychology largely because I had sort of what we would call a medical crisis um, my first year of my PhD program. So I was getting a PhD in clinical psychology and um, it had been having pain. And sure enough, when I, uh, you know, ignored the pain, of course, as we often do, because we're too busy and I was right in the middle of finals. It turned out that this was a large ovarian cyst that had actually caused my ovary to twist, mm-hmm. which can cause great pain and needs to be corrected surgically if you want to keep your ovaries, which as a woman was, you know, kind of a bonus. So um, I was admitted to a hospital to the emergency room and they started the surgery on an emergency basis, of course. And while they were doing the surgery, my right external iliac artery was cut. Now that's a major, major artery and it's not a good thing when that's cut. So um, I had a significant amount of bleeding. And at some point, a doctor was called in and he said, you know what? It's her life or her leg. We're going to lose the leg, but we might as well save her life. This is a young, healthy person who came into the ER otherwise healthy. Um, And that was what my parents were told. My parents live in Ohio and they were told that um, when they came up to Chicago, because of course, I also wanted to spare them um, the fact that I was going into emergency surgery. And when um, when they arrived, they were told, listen, and we, we had to save her life. She's probably going to lose her leg, but we're not going to know that until she wakes up from surgery and stabilizes a little bit. So I woke up from surgery finally. Um, and about three days later, everybody's sort of watching and gathering around my hospital bed, waiting to see me walk to see if I had any leg function. And I hopped out of bed and bounced around the room like I always had, mm-hmm. which was um, nothing really short of a miracle. There was no way that my leg could have been kept alive, essentially, or get 
kept alive and kicking um, with major blood supply really being, you know, damaged in some way. So, but th- then how did that change your trajectory then? Yeah, because after that fact, I mean, really what saved me essentially was the fact that I had been exercising before this surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it brought me to this point of number one, really understanding for myself how important it is to take good physical care of yourself. Um, but also the experience of having been in the hospital, understanding the fear around medical crises. I mean, they can happen to anybody. Understanding what you need to do to maintain healthy lifestyle behaviors. All of that was very very appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And um, part of what drove me into, you know, health psychology and behavior medicine in general. Mm-hmm. Well, and I am your uh, perfect, not skeptic, I am your perfect <laughs> patient because, uh, you know, I, you read all the research and, yeah. you know, talking about uh, uh, obesity as a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would love nothing more than it for it to be a disease and it's like not my fault. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> so, so, right. So convince me because I'm perpetually 20 pounds overweight. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I, I do personally believe that obesity is a medical disease. And I think in order to look at why I would believe that, we have to define disease first. Mm-hmm. So disease is typically something that impairs functioning across a lot of different organ systems or body systems. So from that standpoint, obesity would definitely meet criteria for a disease. And when you say, I would love to be told it's not my fault, mm-hmm. I will tell you it's about six percent not your fault um, in the sense that we inherit genes that, you know, dictate our weight somewhat. Right. It's then our behaviors that sort of dictate where we are on the continuum that we inherit. So if you inherit a certain set point or a certain weight range, it is then you behaviorally that determines where you are on that range. Mm-hmm. But some people will, you know, could eat and eat and eat and eat and never become obese. And some people I'm, could... I'm looking at you directly right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pr- probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I just don't have that allele. Um, but certainly many people eat well and exercise and still struggle with their weight. And that's simply because they inherited a higher weight range than they want. Um, and so some of it also is having to accept what rate, what weight range and what genes you've inherited, right, so, which is hard to do, especially in this culture where fat is so bad. Well, and that, that, that's the other thing is yeah. the, the culture that we have developed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, high carb, low carb, right. you know, it, it seems to change every year. And I'm not saying it's all a, a fad uh, <laughs> Some okay, of it is. I'm actually saying it's a fad. <laughs> but what, in that psychology where we're right. responding to, you know, whether it's the Atkins diet or the secret, right, you know, which, right. what does the, like the most damage? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, what we know physiologically, and then I'll talk about the psychology of it, but what we know physiologically really does the most damage to your weight is sugar. Um, and so we went through this whole, you know, 1980s snack wells, no fat, mm-hmm. low fat. We know that doesn't work, that people get more obese. Then we went through, all right, let's watch your cholesterol. Again, people got more obese, their cholesterol got higher. And so we know that the single biggest inflammatory food that you can eat is definitely sugar and that Mm -hmm. that's linked to weight. Now, as for the psychology of it, life is too short to go without sugar entirely. And so we have to really teach people, all right, how do we not avoid it totally? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that causes all kinds of deprivation. And the minute you get it, you go crazy. Um, Or, But then we still have to have them limit it. And we have to have them limit it in a world where it's everywhere. So it really is like managing an addiction when you have access to that addictive substance all the time. 
the time. And that's where the psychology comes well, in. Well, and that it's, you know, it's 90% of all 7-Elevens or, that's you know, right. where you go into. You can't and, avoid it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think about this as I have uh, two six-year-old twins. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these things that, you know, they are crazy for sugar in a way <laughs> that I see reflected in myself that's yeah. not particularly healthy. Yeah. And and I, I just think about, you know, uh, my we live in Oak Park and you, you have those parents that are like, okay, no sugar ever. Right. And this thing is gluten-free and this has more gluten and, uh-huh. you know, and, yep. and it's managed in such a way <laughs> that um, I, I just think the kids uh, who are kept away from sugar and don't, you know, learn moderation. Right. Like as soon as they hit, you know, fourth grade and they're not around the house, they're going to go nuts. That's they're going exactly to raid right. their friends' right. pantries. Right. They find every bit of refined sugar they can at yeah, their friends' houses. Yeah, tra- yeah. Chasing the dragon. Yes. Basically. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And so I think that is really where you find the middle ground in terms of saying, all right, how do we get them consuming less sugar, but not eliminate it at all? Because you also have to teach them what to do around it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got kids too. They're going to be subjected to sugar everywhere they go. Yeah. Every birthday party, every, you know, birthday at school, they're going to get it. Um, And so we have to teach them what to do around it. You know, I mean, something as simple as saying you can have dessert every night, but you don't have dessert after breakfast and you don't have dessert after lunch. So we have sweets after dinner only. Um, Things like that really work because they give people the structure of quote unquote moderation because moderation is really a myth. Um, You know, it's very difficult as human beings. We can't moderate our behavior, especially around sugar. I need a sugar exorcism. Right. If there's a way to get that. (laughs) Well, and I mean, honestly, we crave what we eat. So if you keep, um, you know, eating sugar, you're going to crave more of it. And so then moderation goes out the window because physiologically, we're just not able to moderate our food intake. Um, And we know that. I mean, there's really new research that shows that actually the higher consumption we have of refined carbohydrates, the worse our signaling is in our brain to signal our stomach to produce fullness and hunger cues. Mm -hmm. So that we literally disrupt our hunger and fullness cues and our satiety centers when we eat too much sugar. So, so this is the advice show. So yes. give, so, so give our audience and give me advice because, <laughs> because you know, I, I just, I just did this thing like called the cleanse. Yes. And, oh, the know, worst! Like, Don't uh, do cleanses. That's my first piece of advice. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> so, like, like my next step is literally voodoo. So, yeah. so give me, give yes. me advice. Yes. Well, first of all, I love the idea of a sugar exorcism, and I would say go ahead and do that, but do it very temporarily. Okay. So, typically, when somebody cannot limit their sugar, or any food. I mean, we can talk about this in in the context of any problem. Food. Food, mm-hmm. We eliminate it altogether very temporarily because that will take some of your cravings down. I mean, as I said, you crave what you eat. Sure. So the less you're eating it, the less you will crave it. And then we work it into your diet, but we keep it out of your home environment. Yeah. So I would say keep it out of your home environment. Go out and get it. Um, have it. Plan for it. Make it deliberate. But go out and get it because the minute it's in your home environment, it will haunt you. Oh, yeah. well, and is, is there <laughs> it such, will call to you. Is, is there such a thing as like sugar methadone? Yeah. You know, is, is, there, is there some sort of like – The so, antidote. Well, yeah. not even additive, you know, that substitute. And I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who used to, like, <laughs> seek out carob. Uh-huh. You know, I'm just like, oh, it's not really chocolate, but it's close. Well, that's how agave got this health halo, that agave would be, oh. you know, I know it's so gross. And it does the same exact thing physiologically that sugar does. So I would say to you, I mean, are artificial sweeteners a little bit better? Not really. Because unfortunately, the data shows that they do the same thing physiologically as sugar. But I would still argue they're probably a little bit better than sugar if you had to do one or the other. Well, I was, I was thinking about that in like, a, you know, stevia was the, yes. the new thing. And I was like, yeah. like, did stevia... 
have some sort of like advertising benefit from Breaking Bad because yeah. Stevia was like a whole subplot. Yes, you yes, know? yes, yeah. And and now I mean Splenda, like Splenda was the clean artificial sweetener. Now they're showing that that causes cancer just like the rest of them too. Um, and so there really is not a great alternative. I mean, sugar isn't good for you either. But at least if we can limit it, that's our best alternative. Second best alternative would probably be artificial sweeteners in very limited amounts. We don't want you overdoing that either. So so tell me a little bit about your home life. So sure. um, your uh, husband is at an investment banker, is that yes. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so what does your pantry look like? <laughs> and because you have the job you have, what yeah. are the negotiations that happen at home? Yes. Well, first of all, I also have children. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, okay. one of whom is also sugar-obsessed, yeah. um, my eight-year-old. And so we do keep a pretty clean pantry, but yet we certainly have sugar. Mm-hmm. So in my pantry right now, you would probably find cookies, crackers, all the things that we tell our patients to limit the um, quantity of, sure. but you would find a reduced variety of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's our negotiation. My husband loves variety. He would love to have seven different kinds of cookies in the house. Sure. We have one because I know if we put seven in there, my kids will be in there all the time. Yeah. So will we. Um, and so we avoid that. But I don't not have cookies in the house because that's not fair either. Um, and I do. I really truly believe life is way too short to go without sugar. And and so you um, – uh, and again, I'm circling back because I think you gave me one piece of advice. Yes. But w- in the advice that you give your patients mm-hmm. – what do you have the hardest time following at home for you and your family? That's a great question. And I know the answer right off the bat. <laughs> and it is only eating while eating. So we always talk about just eating while you're eating because when you pair eating with other activities. Oh, okay. Y- yeah. I was just like, I only think eating while I eat, eating. I'm, 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 I like think I eating eat not in the car, eating not yeah. in front of the TV, not reading while you eat. I mean, I can't remember the last time that I only ate while eating. And I tell patients that all the time. I'm like, you need to do it right now just to break the pattern. But eventually you're going to go back to doing other things while you're eating because we're all busy and the way of the world now is multitasking. Um, But I certainly don't do that on a regular basis. I try. I really do. Um, But, you know, it's a busy life and I eat most of my breakfasts in the car. I plan for it, um, which is a good thing. So, you know, at least I'm planning something healthy, but I'm driving, I'm talking on the phone, I'm talking to my kids in the backseat. So I'm not good about that myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and, uh, I want to bring this sort of like full circle because you talk about your uh, training as a sex therapist? Are you trained in sex therapy? Yes. So um, uh, I had uh, Mitch uh, Fatel, he's a um, comedian on here before, and his wife is training to be a sex therapist. (laughs) And his whole act is about, you know, their very active sex life. Yeah. So my question to him is my question to you, which is, how does that affect um, your relationship? Because, you you know, because if he has a a wife who is a sex therapist, like she's bringing her home, her work home. Yeah. And like what sort of separation? So, so uh, you know, what would your husband say it's like <laughs> to be married to somebody with this sort of insight? Yeah. Well, I think honestly, it can go either way depending on the quality of your relationship before you even start. And mm-hmm. I think for us, it was a very good thing because we had a good relationship to start and reading all of the things that can go wrong. I mean, you think about sex is pretty basic. Um, you know, I mean, the mechanics of it are sure. pretty basic, but there's so much emotion. There's so much physiology that has to be right for you to have a good sex life. And so for me, it was very much an experience of seeing, oh my gosh, there are all kinds of ways that this can misfire and it's not. So I really appreciate what I have, um, which was nice. And so I think my husband would probably say that it made him feel very appreciated. Um, And I think that that's being a psychologist in general, that if you have good, healthy relationships in your life, you really can appreciate them because you see how many times we really significantly mess up relationships. As human beings, we're just not good at them. Well, and and what... what, um, what did your training teach you that you didn't know? 
Like, you know, like, the, yeah. like what were you surprised by that, that changed your behavior in some way? You know, I think that the biggest thing, and it seems so obvious, but at the time for me it wasn't, was that women really are averse to, quote unquote, cuddling. And so we all think, uh, right, because we all think of women just want to cuddle, they want to kiss, they want to snuggle. Mm-hmm. But women in general, if they're having any kind of sexual dysfunction or sexual issues, most often we see this with actually low sex, de- low sexual desire or hypoactive sexual desire. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually don't want to cuddle because they are convinced that for the man, that's going to lead to something. So they avoid them at all costs. And so just getting the man and the woman to commit to, all right, you're only going to kiss. Um, I mean, we literally would assign that as homework. You're only going to kiss tonight. That's it. I want to see that workbook. I know. It was great. Um, and that, I mean, that's literally, though, it's it's called sensate focus. It's one of the first things you do in sex therapy is say, you're going to basically fool around, but you're not going to have sexual intercourse. That's your assignment. And you're going to do that every single night. And okay. it just I, frees. I, cha- I changed my answer. I don't want to see that workbook <laughs> right, anymore. <laughs> right. right. But it frees you up. Yeah. And of course, the minute you tell somebody not to do something, they want to do it all the more. Right. So we would have couples who would say, oh, we haven't had sex in four years. We have no interest. And the minute we tell them don't have sex, you can fool around. Around, but whatever you do, don't have sex. Right. Of course, everybody wanted to. Well, and I, I want to bring this back full circle in uh, how uh, your weight and how your uh, – because I see this all the time. You know, you burn X amount of calories while having sex. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, I, I think I need to talk to some <laughs> former girlfriends. I don't think they burn that many calories. Right, right. But, but uh, how weight um, affects sexual drive. Yeah. Oh, well, it's huge. I mean, first of all, sex is is mostly a brain game. Mm. So obviously weight affects body in the sense that weight can impact your ability to have an orgasm. Weight can impact your desire. In general, weight can impact you physiologically for men. But but how so? Like, like how, how does it affect it? Yeah, because it affects circulation largely. And okay. so I think that's part of the problem. So and the heavier you are, the harder performance might be. That's exactly right. Um, and I think that there are, ju- <laughs> there are just <laughs> functional issues in terms of positioning and feeling good about yourself when you're naked and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, and that of course can impact performance and it can impact you physiologically mm-hmm. because it's really hard to perform when you feel crappy about yourself and the way you look. Mm-hmm. Um, but also again, knowing that sex is mainly a brain game, not feeling good about yourself. I mean, I always say to patients like, you know, do you really feel like going and having sex after you binge eat? Probably not. You're tired. You feel gross. You just want to go to sleep. Well, maybe you can just combine the two. Yeah. We, <laughs> we've had patients do it. Um, we have. I mean, the ultimate and, you know, hedonism for them was just binging in bed and then having a lot of sex. But it's very, very rare. Most people, I mean, it's almost physiologically incompatible to be really, really full and have good sex. Um, And so really so much of it too is that feeling good about your body, feeling good about what you're doing with your body, feeling good about taking care of your body and knowing you're not judged by the partner that you're with for any reason. I mean, that improves sex more than anything we can do as sex therapists. Sure. But when people who who come to you for obesity problems and whatnot, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing one of the triggers is probably sex like mm-hmm. it, it impact it's impacting their life there but what are the other what are the other sort of like spectrums of I guess breaking points yeah when people decide so what are the other reasons people come to see you? Yeah, that, great question. So I think, um, number one, we have a lot of people who come because there's some health crisis. So they say, I finally have type 2 diabetes. I don't want type 2 diabetes. My doctor sent me here. Um, we have a lot of people who have these sort of out of control, I've hit bottom crises mm-hmm. where they'll say, you know, I mean, one of our patients just said to me, well, when I decided that I had to microwave ice cream to get it in faster and to drink it just to get it um, in my body, I knew that I was a quote unquote addict and I had mm-hmm. to get some help. And so a lot of them will say, I'm just totally out of control. 
control and I needed to have therapy. And a lot of people will come in because somebody close to them, a significant other, expresses concern about their weight. So we see that a lot where my kids are worried about my weight. My nine-year-old wrote me a note that said, you know, she wants me to lose weight because she's scared I'll die. Um, And so we see that a lot where it's sort of other directed. And the research, frankly, shows that the most um, motivating sort of incentive for treatment, people do the best when it's appearance related. You would think that that's not the case, that they really want, you know, people who want to get better, you know, so that they have less diabetes or they want to get better so that they don't have diabetes, I should say. Um, It's a much less potent reinforcer than people who just want to kind of look better, um, in part because you look better faster than you eliminate diabetes. And so I think that that just sort of keeps people going. It's it's almost immediate reinforcement for their behavior. So the three things are uh, the three the three triggers are uh, maybe four. The three triggers are uh, looking better. There's some sort of intervention. Yes. Or there's some sort of crisis. Yes. And you're microwaving ice cream. Yes. So for any of those four things. Yes. That's come see the- us. Yeah. Come see <laughs> us. Um, and really, and I think that, you know, the, these are also people, I mean, I, I have to add this, that they have been struggling with weight and food their entire lives, um, or at least their entire adult lives. But we have many people who come who've been binge eating since they were your daughter's age or your son's. Yeah. I don't know who are your twins, There's, boys, girls, what, what one of each. Okay. Yeah. So your son and daughter's age. Yeah. Um, and so it's really, I mean, a lot of times people don't even realize that you see a psychologist for this. They think you go do Weight Watchers. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's also part of our battle in terms of saying, like, these are behaviors that need that are eating disordered behaviors and need to be controlled or treated by a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Because I think people would come more if they knew this kind of help was out there or that this kind of help was what they needed. Well, and and uh, I'm I'm curious, and I uh, just sitting across the table for you, is it easier? to treat people because um, for those of you who are not looking at a picture of us right now, to be (laughs) a fit, attractive woman Or do you have to work to get credibility with them because you are not, uh, you know, outwardly struggling with the same problems that they are? Right. No, it's a very good question. I would say that it's sort of both um, and it really depends. I mean, on the one hand, I had to learn very early in my career that you better be likable and you better not present yourself as perfect when you are a thin woman working with people on weight issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that there's a much, and and when I train uh, our staff and when I train residents and interns, I'm very, very clear about that, that there has to be an approachability, a likability. We use self-disclosure all the time. I curse like crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just I've actually been holding back, but, um, you know, really just to show people that I'm not perfect. I don't pretend to be perfect. This doesn't happen to be my struggle, but we all have our struggles. And so I think if you can do that, it becomes easier. And then I, I do have a lot of patients who say to me, you must know what you're doing. I couldn't go to somebody who struggled with their weight because if they can't control it themselves, why are they telling me what to do? So I think that it does give you some credibility that you practice what you preach. Um, and I absolutely do. Other than the only eating while eating, I might add. Um, and I tell them that I, you know, I don't profess to be perfect at that, but I think it does give you some credibility, but you also have to work hard to show people who you are and that you're not perfect and you don't expect them to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Julie, I think that's a great place to end. Okay. Uh, you have been listening to the advice show. Uh, we are part of the sometimes media local podcast network. Uh, we have been talking with Julie Friedman. Julie, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much.